Good morning. If I have not had the chance to meet you, my name is Ryan. I have the privilege and joy of being one of the pastors here at Arrow Heights. We're so glad that you're here with us today to open God's Word together. Just give a little bit of a roadmap for the next three weeks going into January. We're going to do a brief series on the doctrine of the church, and then we're going to jump back into Mark, where we were in Mark chapter 14. That will take us through April. But today is, as has been said, New Year's Eve. So happy New Year's Eve. And this is you know, kind of an interesting time of year. During the week between Christmas and the New Year, we kind of see an interesting shift take place. Because the holidays, in a way, are over, yet we haven't been shot out of the cannon that is January 1st to hit the ground running. We're sort of in an in-between stage. And it's in this stage, leading up to the New Year, that a lot of people become reflective. We think about this past year and look at the year ahead, and we, we evaluate. This is where New Year's resolutions come from. In this next year, I'm going to be blank. Or in this next year, I'm going to do blank. And these can be good things. We say in this next year, I'm going to be more physically fit or more financially responsible or I'm going to be more committed to this goal. You know, it's always good to evaluate ourselves and see in what areas we may want or need to grow. However, it can also be a temptation. Because in a season like this, it can be easy for us to fall into traps of comparison or even despair. You know, I'll, I'll never get to look like they look. I'll never get as much as they have. Or I'll never achieve as much as they do. And when that happens, an opportunity for growth becomes a foothold for sin. And that voice of bitterness begins to slither. The question is, how do we avoid that? Well, whether or not you're a resolutions person, I want us all to take the opportunity today to examine our trajectory heading into this new year. And as we consider what God would have for us in the year ahead, how can we make sure that we are aiming according to a godly trajectory and not a worldly trajectory? Well, Psalm 49, which is going to be our text today, Psalm 49 is written to answer that question. And that's why we're going to let it speak to us today. Because in this psalm, we find an author who has become reflective. He's looking around and seeing many of the ways that our world measures a right trajectory. And he recognizes many of those same desires in himself. But he also recognizes that there is a temptation for him to define success in a way that is contrary to how God defines success. That there's a snake in that tree of life. So he steps back to remind himself of a fundamental truth. 
And as he does so, he calls us, the readers, to understand it and to learn it as well. So let's, let's open up to Psalm chapter 49 as we ask the question, how should one live for what's next? Psalm 49, to the choir master or for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Verse 1, hear this all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So the first thing that the psalmist wants us to know is that what he's about to say is important. He says, listen, okay, hear this, all peoples, give ear. These are not just words to be heard, but truths to be applied. There's something to be gained for those of us here who will listen. And what is to be gained? Well, verse 3, wisdom and understanding. Well, what are wisdom and understanding? Well, my dad used to always say that experience is making a mistake and learning from it. Wisdom is seeing someone else make a mistake and learning from it. As my son told me, experience is knowing a tomato is a fruit... Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Okay, wisdom and understanding are two very important concepts in the Bible. These words are often used in conjunction with each other, especially in wisdom literature like Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs 2.2 says, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Proverbs 3.13 says, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Proverbs 16.16, how much better it is to get wisdom than gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. So wisdom, according to the scriptures, is gaining the ability to see the world through God's lenses. It's understanding that God knows what is good and right and true and that he wants us to both know and experience those things as well. Wisdom is seeing the world not as we want it or as people might try to sell it to us, but as God created and designed and equipped it to work. Understanding, then, is the experiential practice of putting wisdom to the test. It's seeing that life does indeed work best when we trust and follow the wisdom that God has given to us in his word. So wisdom and understanding are the two lenses that God has given to us to help us walk according to the light in a dark and broken world. In verses 1 through 4, the, the psalmist is saying, in effect, this is what I have learned. This is the wisdom that I have heard and tested and have come to understand. Therefore, I want you to understand it as well. 
This is a traveler walking toward us as we navigate the path of life saying, I've just been there. Go this way. Don't go that way. Verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. So the psalmist seeks to help us first by asking a question. And that question is, why should I fear in times of trouble? In other words, when the path seems unclear and there are many voices vying for our attention, calling out to us this way, follow me. How do we know what is true? How do we know the right trajectory to follow? Specifically, the psalmist is looking at those who call out from a path that says wealth and riches. Or basically, we we could read this as the accumulation of the things of this world. That these things are the way to salvation. That this is the path one should follow. That whatever it takes, the voices say. You've got to get the money, get the power, get the gratification, get the pleasure. This is the way he hears them call. The trouble for the psalmist is that even though these things aren't necessarily bad, he knows that this path that follows them can include a degree of treachery, even selfishness. He's been burned by some of the people and ways on this path. So the psalmist's difficulty stems from the fact that even though he knows that trusting in the accumulation of the things of this world can be somewhat devious, even dangerous, that those things look really good. They look very tempting. You know, why shouldn't I get to have what they have? Why shouldn't I get to look the way they look? Why shouldn't I get to enjoy or feel what they enjoy or feel? And these questions create a tension for the psalmist that leads to a temptation. And he starts to think, perhaps this is the way to get what I truly need. There are two very important words here that the psalmist uses to describe the mindset of those who are down this path. Those words are trust and boast. The things of this world are not only what these people have attached themselves to, or what they are trusting in, but they are boastful about them. They use these things as a form of loud, pretentious self-definition, and they want everyone to know it. It makes me think of 1 Samuel 17. I mean, the, the account of David and Goliath, the Philistines and the Israelites were facing one another on opposing mountains. And the way that they waged war was not army against army, but man against man. They said, you send out your best and brightest, 
and we'll send out ours. And we'll let them fight, and whichever one wins will determine the fate of all of us. So our guy wins, we win. Your guy wins, you win. Both sides attached themselves to a great figure that they believed was stronger than anything or anyone else. And they believed their figure would win. In this representative, they placed their trust. But this trust overflowed in loud, boisterous boasting. Nothing is better than what we have. Nothing is bigger than what we have. Nothing can do what we have can do. And the Philistines march out their great champion, Goliath, saying, whatever happens to him, happens to me. This is my trust and my boast. What then has the psalmist learned? What is the, the wisdom and the understanding that he wants to impart? Well, as seen in the case of Goliath, this strategy doesn't always work. And can, in fact, have grave consequences. Verse 7. He says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. So what the psalmist wants to impart to his readers, this wisdom he wants them to understand, is that all the things of this world have limits. And every single one of them stops before the line of what we truly need. There is no wealth that we can accumulate no pleasure that we can enjoy, no feeling that we can pursue that in the end doesn't just get up and walk away. Nothing in this world truly satisfies our greatest need. Nothing in this world can defeat our greatest enemy. Nothing can save us from our universally inevitable end. Nothing can keep us from death. And though we were created to live forever in perfect harmony with God, our creator, we as humanity rebelled against him, reorienting the gifts that he gave us from their purpose of enjoying and flourishing in his kingdom to be used as tools in our own vain attempt to build our own kingdoms. We have set ourselves against God as his enemies, every one of us. This is the nature of sin. Romans 6.23 says the wage or what has been earned from that sin is death. 
By default, we are all bound for eternal separation from our God. And no one is exempt from this. Verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Selah. Now, Selah means, means, means pause. Means think about this. Verse 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. So listen, listen to, that, to that first phrase. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Foolish confidence. What is it to be boasting in the things of this world? What are we displaying when we attach ourselves to this world in order to attempt to satisfy our greatest need and our deepest longings? It's foolish confidence. It's false it's setting sail on a ship that is destined to sink. Nothing in this world can bear the weight of our salvation, no matter how confident we are in it. Those who trust in the fleeting ways of this world, the psalmist says, are simply like sheep being driven along by a shepherd. They simply follow the path of the loudest and the brightest and the most popular and the sounds of the people clapping in approval of their boast. Never realizing that the shepherd is driving them is death himself. Death is their shepherd. Destruction is their end. Verse 15. But God, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Okay, this is the wisdom of the psalmist. Though the path of this world calls out to us and pulls at our pride, there is another path. But God. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, which is the place of eternal death and destruction. There is another way, the psalmist says. There is another path. There is a true and better shepherd. And what does that shepherd do? The psalmist says, God, our shepherd, will ransom my soul. God will accomplish for me what I cannot accomplish on my own. Only God addresses the true nature of our greatest problem. To remember verses 7 through 8. No one, no man can pay our ransom. No one can rescue us from our common fate. As we said, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the psalmist reminds us that that's not the end of that sentence. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. But 
The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have a true and better champion who has entered the chasm for us and defeated the enemy in our place. Jesus, the Christ, God the Son in human flesh, in laying down his life on the cross, paid the ransom that we owed. He opened the door to eternal life with God that was not available to us in our state of sin and rebellion. God, our good shepherd, has made the way. And he is leading us home. And when we get there, the psalmist says, he will receive us. So hear the wisdom of the psalmist. The boast of the wise is not in their stuff, but in their Savior. This, this is the wisdom that the psalmist wants us to understand. Set your heart and your boast on the one thing that can actually accomplish what it is that you truly need. Because everything else falls short. Therefore, the psalmist says, we don't have to feel that tug of envy when others accumulate what we think it is that we want or that we need. We don't have to succumb to temptation for the desires of this world because we know they have an end. Verse 16, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Verse 20, man in his pomp like verse 12, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So be not afraid, the psalmist says. In other words, don't feel like you're missing out by not following the way of the world. Don't be overcome with jealousy and envy or, or desire to tune your heart's rhythm to the pulse of the age when it begins to amplify its volume. The end of every single thing that we can accumulate in this world is the same. We get to keep none of it. Therefore, don't spend your life on everything that is temporary. There is no permanent kingdom of the self. Live instead, the psalmist says, for what is eternal. As missionary Jim Elliott has famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is the wisdom that the psalmist has learned from experience. That's what he wants us to understand and what he encourages us to embrace. Live today not for what's now, but for what's next. 
As Charles Studd once said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, I'm originally from Ponca City. And if, if you've ever been to Ponca City, you know there, there's not a lot there. It's not real flashy. But at the center of the city, there's a place called the Marland Mansion. What was once referred to as the Palace on the Prairie. The mansion was built by E.W. Marland, a man who found a lot of oil in the 1910s and 20s and subsequently made a lot of money. And Marland built this massive empire, naming it after himself, the Marland Oil Company. Now in 1922, it was estimated that Marland controlled one-tenth of the entire world's oil reserves. Now by comparison, today the country of Iraq currently has over 12%. Now because of Marland and his wealth, in the 20s, many people looked to Ponca City, Oklahoma as the future social and financial New York City, a Silicon Valley type of place. Ponca City was hot. Ponca City was the future. Everyone wanted a piece of Marland Oil Company and everyone wanted to be E.W. Marland. And, you know, many people don't know this, but Marland actually built two mansions in Ponca City. The first mansion had 22 rooms and eight acres of beautiful terraced gardens. And Marland moved into that mansion in 1925 while his other mansion was being built. And today you can actually go and tour Marland's final mansion to see it in all of its decadence. It's a huge sprawling property with marble floors and yes, secret passages. And beautiful art, more than a mansion, it's an estate. The Marland Estate, completed in 1928. A monument of achievement. A lavish testament to what man with his wealth can achieve. So what happened? What happened? from their own Marlin website, says, the grandiose lifestyle that welcomed the Marlins to their new home did not last long. On November 1st, 1928, E.W. Marlin resigned as president of his oil company. He was the victim of what could be referred to as a hostile takeover. J.P. Morgan and company had gained control of the Marland Oil Board of Directors and their influence on the executive committee left E.W. powerless to carry out his business plans and defenseless against their takeover. In the early 1930s, the Marlins were unable to afford their utility bills, so they moved into the artist studio, a smaller building on the grounds of the estate. In 1941, E.W. E. finally had to do the one thing he didn't want to do, sell the mansion. The house that had been built and furnished at a cost of $5.5 million, remember that's in 1928, 
$5.5 million was sold to the Carmelite Fathers in 1941 for $66,000. Marlon died of a heart ailment six months later in the cottage where he and his wife lived. Every single one of us in 1925 would have given anything to be E.W. Marlin. We would have held him up as the pinnacle of what we were trying and striving to achieve. And three years later, in 1928, none of us would have touched him with a 10-foot pole. You tell me which way is the path of wisdom. The question for us today is, what about us? What do we seek? What are we chasing? Is our goal to accumulate the trinkets and the treasures of this temporary world... Or are we investing in what can never be taken from us? Will we walk the path of this world? Or will we trust and follow God in his way? You know, to help us reflect, we can ask a very simple diagnostic question. That question is, am I sacrificing the things of this world to get the things of God or am I sacrificing the things of God to get the things of this world? And the truth is many of us are packing for a trip where our luggage isn't going to even make the plane. So much that I invest my time and my energy and my resources and hopes in can easily be taken away with just one phone call. And that can be devastating. That can lead to a time of great fear. But if our trust is in the unshakable foundation of Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf, if that is our identity... If that is our hope and our boast, then we are okay with the loss of the things of this world because our hope was never in their permanence anyway. Christ alone in his permanence is enough for us. And so the great thing about setting our trajectory and our hope and our trust in Christ is that we will never need to say, I need more. Jesus, just, just one more nail, Jesus, just, just one more whip lash on your back, just one more thorn in that crown, one more drop of your blood on my behalf. There is nothing else that you need for eternal salvation and true life in this world that Christ has not already given to you and for you. When Jesus died on the cross, sacrificially laying his own life down as the payment that you and I owed for our sin, Jesus spoke clearly, it is finished. 
as we prepare to enter a new year and reflect on what we may want to accomplish or do, let us remember first what has already been accomplished and what is now done. That we have been ransomed through Christ our King, the God, our Father, who receives us. And in that light, whatever we resolve to do, whatever we resolve to be, becomes not an end in and of itself, but a means to serve a greater end. What we have and what we are becomes not what we serve, but what we use to serve the one true king. This is the wisdom of Psalm 49. This is the wisdom that will guide us faithfully as we walk into the year ahead. And may we understand and apply it as we do. Let's pray. Oh God, you are above all things, worthy of all praise and adoration, every resource, every attention, every affection, all are rightly and deservedly given to you. And not even simply as a sacrifice, but as a joy. It is our joy to know you, our joy to come to you. But God, I confess and we confess as a people, we have settled for lesser joys. We have run after lesser things that deserve our attention and our affection. And God, we, I, are timid to let go of the things of this world so that we may fully grasp the things of you. And God, we thank you for the resources, the things that you have given us. God, I pray that you would help us to use every resource, every amount of time, everything, even our very selves, to serve you for your glory, that gospel, the gospel may be known and shown throughout this world and this community. God, I, pray, I pray that in this new year, you would set our eyes on you that you would train us and give us your wisdom and that we would glory in your understanding. It's in your name that we pray and that we lean, Jesus. Amen.